Well, it's a privilege to be before you this evening, this afternoon. Uh, while I am getting myself situated, why don't you open up your Bibles to the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 9. We're going to be in John 9. And while you're turning there, and I'm turning there, how many of you have ever experienced a trial? Have you been through hardship before? I mean, we just are, I mean, we, we still kind of deal with COVID. We all went through COVID together. Uh, some of us, uh, whether it was just the, uh, the, the, the stress, the, the loss of, of community, of connection with people uh, during COVID, some of us wrestled with COVID physically to the point of hospitals and uh, prayer of wondering if this person was even going to make it, if, even if I'm going to make it. Some of us have experienced trials of, of, of illness, of, of being, uh, getting that diagnosis of cancer. Some of us have had those trials of, of a loved one, of a, of a son or daughter who has walked away from the faith, maybe has walked away from a relationship in the family, and you have mourned and, and hurt over that. Some of you have experienced all sorts of trials. And many of us have experienced a communal trial here in the last few months. Well, I want to look at the Gospel of John chapter 9. And what I want us to see here with trials is not for us to bemoan and think about, man, it's been hard to go through these things. But I want us to have a different perspective on trials. And that perspective is that trials in Jesus' hands are opportunities to display God's glorious work. If you get anything from me tonight, it is that big idea. If you're counting words, it's 11. Hal, are you here? It's 11 words. I couldn't get it down to 10. Trials in Jesus' hands are opportunities to display God's glorious work. Let me read this. It's, it may be a familiar story. I want you, if it is familiar to you, to, to not jump ahead and be like, oh, I know where this is going. It is best for us to continue to just go through these familiar passages as if we're seeing them for the first time. So let me read through, uh, through the story. We're going to go kind of section by section, paragraph by paragraph. But John chapter 9, verse 1 through 7, starts like this. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This miracle is interesting to me because it's instigated by a question from the disciples. A question as they walk by this blind man, the, the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned? Because for them, this blindness, this disability, only could be connected to sin. Was it this man's sin or was it the sin of his parents? And while in some way sin is at the root of all disability, of all illness, in the, sense that when, in the sense that those things are all a result of the fall. But for the disciples, they could only reconcile this man's blindness as a punishment for some specific sin. The disciples were very similar to Job's friends, the miserable comforters that they were, when they assumed that Job's trials could only be due to his sin. 
But Jesus gives them a different answer. But before we get to his answer, I want us to think about that, that idea of where does our trials, where do our trials come from? The disciples' question to Jesus revealed something in their heart. By reducing the blind man's condition to a result of sin, they tried to make sense of pain and suffering in this world by putting it in terms that they could control. Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought, you know what, if, if, I, if I live right, if I pray, if I do my devotions today, then things will go well. If I don't do those things and bad things happen to me, what's the first thought in my head? Well, I didn't read the Bible this morning and so that's why I got in that car accident. Well, I got that speeding ticket because I haven't been praying. Anyone ever thought that? Thanks, Alan, appreciate that. At least someone's honest. See, we want to reduce trials and pain and suffering in our life into things that we can control. If I put in A, then B comes out. But what happens when we put in A and C comes out? Something else that we're not expecting. Well, it's because we have the same mindset that the disciples did. That it's, either, it's, it's all a result of sin. It was either his or his parents' sin. And that's why this happened. I want us to get tonight that trials are not something to be to be managed, not something to be avoided, but that I want us to see that trials are opportunities for us to place our trust in God to help so that he can see us through them. Trials are opportunities for growth, opportunities for trust. But let's keep on with the story and, and, and Jesus' miracle here. Jesus responds to the disciples' question with a third option. They said it's either him or his parents' sin. But what does Jesus say in verse 3? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is the lens in which we need to read the rest of this passage through. Those words from Jesus. It wasn't because of their sin. It was so that the works of God may be seen and may be displayed in him. This hopefully brings up some questions to our mind. And if we could all answer this in kind of a small group form, I hope you would come up with some of these questions too. Some of you might say, when? When are we going to see the works of God on display? How are we going to see them on display? Or maybe you're kind of cynical and you're saying, God, this seems unfair. Really? This is all? He's gone his whole life being blind so that something might happen at this one moment in time? That seems kind of mean. What are the works of God that are going to be on display? Well, let's keep looking. Jesus expands his answer to the disciples in verse 4 when he says, We must work the works of him who sent me. What do you notice about the pronouns there? It's two different pronouns, right? We and me. We must work. He's talking to the, the disciples. We have a job to do here that God is going to use you and me, the Messiah, Jesus, to do some works to display God's glory. If we know the rest of the Gospels, we know that the disciples are given power and gifts in order to, to heal and, and do their own miracles. Jesus certainly does those as well. So maybe we're thinking that there's a miracle coming, and we've already read about that miracle. First, God's work on display is accomplished through Jesus and through his disciples. Who are you? Disciples, right? Pastor Brian just talked about that last week. How does, how does God receive glory in the church? Through those who are edified and growing in discipleship in the church. We are his disciples. And so let me tell you first that God's work 
on display happens through his people. Amen? Can you hear me? All right, let's get, I know it's hot. Let's talk a little bit, all right? Okay, so second, there's an urgency to these works. What does Jesus say? He says, the works are done during the day and the night is coming soon. So he's saying, hey, there's some works that I'm doing. I'm the light of the world. I'm here doing these works and night is coming where they won't be able to be done in a particular way. And then lastly, like I just said, he says, he uses this day-night analogy in the foreshadow, which foreshadows the healing of the blind man. It's going from darkness to light. He is the light of the world, and light is what allows us to see. So Jesus wraps this up. He spits in the dirt, mixes his spit into mud. He rubs it on the blind man's eyes and instructs him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. There's a little parenthesis there. John is really helpful here throughout this chapter, John 9. He's going to give us a lot of extra statements to help us understand the context of what's going on. And so he says here in this parenthesis, Siloam, which means sent. I find this note really interesting because think of it. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the sent one. He's the one who has been sent from God, the Father, as the Messiah. And he now sends the blind man to the pool, which means sent. The sent one sends to sent. All right. There's a connection here. The blind man obediently does as he is told, and he returns with the ability to see. It seems like maybe this introduction of Jesus when he says, it's not their sin, it's the fact that uh, the works of God might be on display. We have just seen a mighty work of God, have we not? The man has been healed of blindness from his birth. End of story, let's pray, amen. But there's more to the story, isn't there? I only read the first seven verses, and I believe there's 41 verses in this chapter. So something else is going on here. Let's continue on, because what we're going to see in the next 34 verses is four investigations and one very important interrogation. Four investigations and one interrogation. Let's pick up in verse 8. Verse 8 says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others says, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, and he said, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So I find this part, I find this whole chapter, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this a number of times, I find this part very interesting because the, the neighbors of the blind man noticed something different. Well, how do they notice something different? Well, because they knew who he was. This was a blind beggar, and as a blind beggar in the, in the ancient Near East, in the first century, you didn't have much, many prospects. Your prospects in life were to get to the best thoroughfare, you know, where everyone's walking by, and you put out your tin can, you put out your hat, you put out your cup, and you rely on the, the alms, and the donations of people that are walking by. You're begging. He's a beggar. And so his neighbors, of course, walk those same roads, those same paths, and they know who he is. This is the blind beggar who's there every day, every day relying on the graciousness of his neighbors to give him money so that he can live another day. So they walk by, and they notice something different. What do they notice? He can see. 
He's not sitting in his normal spot. He's walking around, talking, doing what we all do when we can see. And there begins to be a debate among the neighbors. I love this debate. There, there's some humor here. And because they say, well, well, that's the blind man. And, the, and some of them say, no, he just looks like the blind man. And finally, they ask him, you know, can you imagine being the first person that was asked, like that got up the nerve to go ask? Probably nudging him, hey, you go ask. No, you go ask. No, you go ask. They finally go up to him and he says, yeah, I'm the man. I'm the blind man who used to sit right there. And they ask him, well, how can you, how is it that you see? And he recounts his story as best as he knows how. This man, very important, very important little word there. This is going to come up throughout this story. So I want you to put a pin in this. But he says, the man Jesus anoint, or, or, or made mud, anointed my eyes, and, and sent me to, to Sloam, and I came back, and I see. And they said, where is he? He says, I don't know. Why? Because he went to the, to the pool of Siloam, and when he came back, Jesus was already gone. So he doesn't know. He's heard the name. He, doesn't, he hasn't seen him. He was blind, remember? Okay. And he says, I, I don't know. I don't know where he is. This is the first investigation where, where the blind beggar, who's now healed, he can now see, testifies to the man, Jesus, healing him. The crowds, wanting more information, say, hey, let's take the blind man and let's go to the Pharisees. Let's go to the Pharisees and maybe they can get to the bottom of this. Now, as we read the Gospels, many times we associate the Pharisees with kind of bad, right? They're the bad guys, so to speak. The, the, the neighbors aren't taking, them, taking the blind man to the Pharisees to get him in trouble, to tell on him. These are the, the leaders. They're the ones who know Scripture. They know the law. And so the neighbors are saying, hey, let's take him to the people that should know what to do with this. This isn't, again, nefarious, trying to get him in trouble. They just want to get some answers. So here comes our second investigation in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. That's our second note that John gives us, right? First we have the definition of Siloam. Now John kind of inserts himself and says, it was the Sabbath day when all of this happened. When Jesus, what? Made the mud. What do we know about the Sabbath? What are you not supposed to do on the Sabbath? Work. And so John here is really emphasizing the fact that this miracle was done with some labor, with some work. He made the mud and opened his eyes. Verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him, the blind man, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. What do you notice about the blind man's testimony now? He was very expansive to the neighbors. The man Jesus, he did this, he anointed my eyes, so on and so forth. But now he just kind of gets right to it, kind of bullet point, right? Just kind of, I, I already told you, you already heard this. He says, put mud on my eyes, I washed, I see. He didn't tell him where, didn't, didn't say who, he just gets to it. Some of the Pharisees, verse 16, said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. So the Pharisees here are fixated not on this amazing miracle of a man who has been blind from birth now being able to see. What are they concerned about? 
They're concerned about the mode, the way that this happened. And the way that this happened was through breaking Sabbath laws. At least three Sabbath laws for the Pharisees are broken. First, it was forbidden to heal on the Sabbath, unless it was an emergency. The only, the only healing that could be done, the only work of restoring someone that could be done was in the case of an emergency. Was this man's blindness an emergency? No, he had been born blind. So this was hardly a case of emergency. Second, for the Pharisees, kneading was forbidden on the Sabbath. Kneading as in kneading dough, right? So you couldn't make your dough on the Sabbath. You would do it the day before, and then you would cook what you had. That, you couldn't work it on the Sabbath. So, well, how's he kneading? What did he do? He spit on the ground, and he mixed it to make mud. That's the kneading. So he's broken another pharisaical law to add to the Sabbath. And then thirdly, uh, anointing the eyes was forbidden. At least some within the Pharisees said you couldn't anoint your eyes on the Sabbath. Now, now please understand that these are additional uh, steps to the law that the Pharisees added. This wasn't something that, that was prescribed to Moses, that God had given to Moses and was written in, the, in, in Leviticus or written in Exodus. This, or Deuteronomy, this was something that the Pharisees added to, to kind of fence even more additions to, to the law so that they wouldn't even get close to breaking it. But nevertheless, this is what the Pharisees have, have focused on. They have focused on, in on not the miracle, but the fact that Jesus worked, or this man worked. So they now try to get the blind man to, to join kind of forces with them. And they say to him, well, well, who do you say this man is? And what does the blind beggar say? He is a prophet. What did he say to the, to the neighbors? He's a man. Jesus is, is the man. Not, not like the man, like Garrett's the man. He's, he's a man, right? Now... Now the blind man has progressed, his, his faith, his understanding is growing, and he says, well, he must be a prophet. You can see his faith in, in, growing as his knowledge is growing as well. Well, let's go on to the third investigation. So we've got two investigations so far, the neighbors, now the Pharisees. The Pharisees now turn their attention to someone else because it's not working to discredit the, the blind man, the, the actual testimony of what happened is they, they didn't find anything that they could attack. So instead, they, they turned their direction and attention to uh, discrediting his story of, of who he is. Verse 13, um, I'm sorry, verse 18, verse 18, the Jews did not believe that, they had been, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he, no how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. Here's another note from John, verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The Pharisees 
sorry, not getting anywhere with the blind man, the Jews, which is just another way to refer to as the Pharisees, and maybe, maybe some of the other uh, scribes are there, or Sadducees are kind of getting together, it's the religious leaders. They're seeking to discredit the blind man's story by insisting that he wasn't really that blind. So what do they do? They go to his parents and they say, what, 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 was he really blind? Is this really your son? Is he a lookalike? Sounds kind of like the neighbors who said, oh, it kind of looks like him. And the parents simply testify, yeah, he's our son, and we know he was blind. I mean, if anyone knows that he's blind, that he was born blind, it's his mother and father. So now the Pharisees ask the parents, well, how is it that he can now see? But in this paragraph, the parents don't give an answer because the parents are concerned based on what John gave us in this note, where it says the, the Pharisees are kind of out to get anyone that aligns themselves with Jesus. And so they would rather not answer the question for fear of being put out of the synagogue than, than, than to risk that being put out of the synagogue. What does it mean to be put out of the synagogue? Being put out of the synagogue meant that was, that was your cultural identity, that was your community, that was the people that, that when you were in need came to your, your help to, to provide for you, to, to bring that meal, to, to pray for you. And so to be cast out of that community was to be cast out of the ability to, to do business, to be cared for, to have people that, w- that were on your side. And so for them, it was like death. And so they said, we're not going to answer this question for fear of losing out on that community, of being uh, part of the synagogue. So the Pharisees have met another dead end, another roadblock. And we come to our fourth investigation. They go back to the blind man, verses 24 through 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. This fourth investigation, the blind man has had enough. He's not playing the games anymore. He's not going to answer their questions in kind of neat, orderly fashion. He gets right to it and goes on the attack. The Pharisees come back to him and say, tell us again how this all happened. In fact, they start with by saying, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Give glory to God is basically kind of like, I mean, how would you put it? It's it's, you know, swear on the Bible kind of talk. You know, we, we already know this. Give glory to God. God is your witness. We already know the truth. And so be careful because whatever you say, God knows. They, they're trying to, again, bully him into agreeing with their side. 
And the blind man doesn't take their bait. He says, as far as a sinner, what you're saying, I, I don't know. Let's look at the evidence. I was blind, now I see. What a great testimony, right? Testimonies don't have to be long. They don't have to be three to five minutes. They don't have to be half hours. We, we need to have a testimony that's, I was blind, but now I see, right? So that's what he does. And then they said, well, they're going to get back to the work thing, right? They're Pharisees. They want to get at the Sabbath. And so they said, tell us again how it happened. And I, I love it. I love the blind man's response. Well, why do you want to hear this again? Do you want to be his disciple? I heard a chuckle. That's exactly what John wanted when he wrote this. It is a chuckle-worthy statement, response. He says, do you want to be his disciple? And what do the Pharisees say? We already know that you're his disciple. You're in cahoots with him. There's, there's something going on. We are disciples of Moses, right? Can, can, can you see them kind of puffing out their chest, maybe sticking their nose up a little bit higher? We're disciples of Moses. And we don't know where this man has come from, which is really interesting because uh, just, just a, a few chapters before in chapter 7, they, dis, they, they, de, they declare definitively, we know where he's come from. He's from Nazareth. So which one is it? Do you know where he's from or do you not know where he's from? Furthermore, their testimony, their, 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 their prideful, pompous response of we're disciples of Moses, are they really disciples of Moses? Because if they were disciples of Moses, they would heed what Moses has written. John 5, 46 through 47, Jesus says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus condemns the Pharisees and says, you claim to follow Moses. Well, what Moses was writing about, what the law is all about, what happened in Exodus, what the Passover lamb is all about, is pointing to who? To the Messiah, to Jesus. And if you don't believe him about the Messiah, how are you going to believe me? the Messiah, Jesus. The blind man's amazed at the Pharisee's response when he says that God listens to those who worship him and do his will. How could a sinner perform this type of miracle? I mean, this is kind of basic stuff. How could a sinner, someone who's an enemy of God, do these amazing things, is what the blind man says. And so the Pharisees are beginning to lose grasp, right? They're, they're like, hey, we're not winning anymore. Can you, can, you, can you imagine the crowds being around too? Like, oh, what are they saying? Oh, what, oh, the blind man just got to point in. How the Pharisee is going to respond. And they sense it. And what do they say? What do they do? They answered him. They just get down to it. They start attacking him. You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? So here, the, 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 the blind man has made all of these good points, all of these valid points that the Pharisees have no argument against. Instead, they just go attack the person. You were born in utter sin. What does that remind us of? The disciples' question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What did the Pharisees think? Well, they thought, the answer was, it's either you or your parents. You were born in utter sin. There was Pharisaical teaching. Uh, the Pharisees believed that, that uh, an infant in the womb could sin, um, in, their, in, their, in the mother's womb. Or that the mother, too, could sin and that sin could transfer to the infant as well. So either one, they don't, they don't decide here, but they say, you were born in utter sin. They answer the question that the disciples asked, even though Jesus gives a different answer. 
And what do they say? And how, would you, or how dare you try to teach us? You're a sinner. And they cast him out. This is what his parents were worried about. And they've done it to their son. They've cast the blind man out. He is no longer welcome in the synagogue. He has lost his community. He has lost his support system. Imagine if he was still a beggar. Now he definitely doesn't have that support system. But yet he can see. So those are our four investigations. I told you there's one more interrogation after these investigations. And it's no longer the Pharisees. It's Jesus. Verse 35 through the end of the chapter. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So Jesus seeks out the blind man. Hearing that he had been cast out, he finds him and he begins his interrogation of the blind man. He doesn't ask about the miracle. He doesn't, he doesn't ask for a reminder of, of the, the mud that was made in Siloam. Anything like that. Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. And Jesus says, do you believe in the, Son of, in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Messiah? And the blind man says, well, who is he? I don't know, but I want to believe in him. And Jesus says, you have seen him, and it is he who's speaking to you. I, what's so amazing about Jesus' response there? You have seen him. The blind man who now sees has seen the Messiah. And it is he who is speaking to you. And how does the blind man respond? Lord, I believe. His third testimony in this chapter. First off, it was the man, Jesus. Well, who is he? He's a prophet. Well, finally, when he is confronted with Jesus, and Jesus says, it's, it's, it's I. I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. What does the blind man, how does he respond? Lord, God, I believe. And then what? He worships him. He worships. Well, the story doesn't end. Jesus has a few statements that he says. And, 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 and again, I want us to picture this scene because sometimes we get so focused when we're, when we're reading the Gospels, we just think of the characters that are doing stuff. We forget about who might be there. Who's around, Right? And so Jesus is having this conversation and he seeks him out. There's probably crowds, there's probably people, you know, there's people following Jesus. There's people who knew the blind man. The Pharisees are still milling about. And Jesus says, um, I don't know to anyone, maybe he's just kind of being cheeky too and he just wants to say it loud enough for someone else to hear. You ever do that? <laughs> well, sure, go ahead and line, you know. You didn't really mean that, you just wanted them to, to hear that. Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. He says it loud enough that some of the Pharisees near him heard it. And they take offense and they say, wait, you, you mean we're blind? You think we're blind? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. 
But since you claim to see, since you claim to know the law, since you claim to know God and to worship God, you condemn yourself because you have missed it. You have missed the Messiah. You are blind and you, your guilt remains. And that's how the healing of the blind man, the miracle, ends. Jesus told us that this man was born blind so that the works of God may be seen. What were the works of God to be seen? Was it the healing? Yes, but I think there's more. I think the work of God that we really see in this chapter is the blind man's faith where he is redeemed by Jesus. He places his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Messiah, who will go to the cross and die as a substitute for the, all who believe in him who doesn't stay dead. He raises from the grave, victorious over death, so that we can have eternal life. That is the work of God that was displayed in the blind man. And who else is that work displayed in? Everyone who places their faith in Christ. We all were blind. We all were dead in our sins and trespasses. And by the grace and mercy of, of God through Jesus, we have been redeemed. The works of God are on display in us. I got three things, three kind of walkaways for us, three principles I want us to think of when, I think of, when we think of John 9. The first one was that big idea. Trials in Jesus' hands are opportunities to display the glorious works of God. When you face a trial, please know that it may take time. You may be facing this trial and thinking, God, I'm ready for your works. Deliver me from this. Show me what the point is. The man was born blind. How long had he been blind where he was waiting for those works to be done? You may be experiencing trials right now and you may be wanting them to be over. You're like, I was over it last week, last month, last year. God may be teaching you and growing you and waiting to display his glorious work in you, but it will take time. And secondly, trials will hurt. Trials aren't necessarily, well, hey, I'm saved now and, and it'll just roll off like water off the back. No, trials hurt. The blind man was cast out. But Jesus sought him out. Second, growing faith in the midst of trials displays the glory of God. How you handle trials is an opportunity for God's glory to be seen. Not necessarily to be seen in your life where you experience that glory, but maybe those who are watching you see God's glory in the way that you're trusting him, in the way that you are, in the way that you have Christian brothers and sisters rallying around you, that brings glory to God when they see you and others helping you through trials. But ultimately, God's ultimate work is revealed in redeeming us through the blood of Christ. That's what John 9 is about. God's work on display in us is our salvation. Do you know Christ? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ where you recognize, you know what, I am a sinner. I have fallen short of, of God's standard, of God's glory. And because of that, I deserve punishment. 
The Bible tells us that we all fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But there's a wonderful gift that God has given us, and it's His Son, Jesus Christ. His Son, Jesus, took on the weight of our sin on the cross. He was our substitute. He took that punishment so that we don't have to experience that punishment, that eternal separation from God, but we can have eternal life. All we have to do is, by faith, trust in Jesus and his, and his act on the cross for us. That he didn't stay dead, that he conquered death, rose from the grave so that we could have eternal life. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I implore you, I, we want to see the glory of God at work in your life in salvation. If you've never placed your trust in Christ, today is the day of salvation. All you have to do is, is, is admit, God, I'm a sinner. I need your son Jesus to save me from my sins. And then you can walk in fullness of life and have an abundant life like John 10.10 says. Jesus says, I came to give life and life to the full. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for this wonderful testimony of the blind beggar who encounters you, who, who experiences this wonderful gift of, of miraculous sight. He goes from, from calling you a man to a prophet and then to worshiping you as Lord and God. Lord, I pray that that we too here would recognize that, that the greatest glorious work that you can do in our life through our trials, through our hardships, is saving us. Lord, I do pray, though, for those physical trials that we face, the hardships that we go through, Lord, that they would bring glory to you in the way that we trust in you, in the way that we wait for your work to be done in our lives. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, that they, would, that they would repent of their sins, that they would turn to you, return, turn to Christ as their Savior. We love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.